Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. I'm starting my episodes this month with some exciting news. I have now launched my new website, KarenAnceMD.com, as well as a variety of social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all under KarenAnceMD. And I would love for you to start following me on these channels because my hope is that I can start putting out some content that is going to help all of us on our journey. And the theme for this month is the white essence, which is about essential will. And I'm teaching a free class on Wednesdays from six to seven that is going to help all of us to change our habits. So whatever habit you have, I'm working on my nervous system reactivity and my tendency to interrupt. Um, You can also join me on your journey. Do you have a habit around eating food, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, watching too much television, being on social media, whatever it is, we can come together and use mindfulness and presence and some scientifically proven ways to build new neural pathways in the brain. So I hope that you'll join me. You can visit my website, KarenAnceMD.com, to register for free to come to the classes on Zoom. The second offering that I have this month is on conscious communication and resonant healing. So all of us here in the Enneagram community know that our Enneagram type has given us some core wounds. So I hope that you'll join me so that I can share with you some of the strategies that I've been using to overcome my structure and where I identify. And if we can all embark on this journey together, I think it could be really exciting. So I hope I see you in class. Welcome to The Blind Spot. We're here today with Annie O'Shaughnessy, such an Irish name. I hope everybody (laughs) goes and looks in the show notes. I'm having fun reading it. But she is here because we started into a dialogue on Facebook after the last episode with Kristen Messagey. And Annie is an educational consultant who started her journey um, also as a magazine producer that was about living our truth. And she has a history of trauma that she's done some deep healing work with. And she's now actually bringing that experience into schools where she's working in Vermont as an educational consultant and helping to humanize schools. And she identifies as either a six with a seven wing or a seven with a six wing. So with her permission, maybe I'll weigh in at the end of the interview if anything's (laughs) popping up for me. Um, But she identifies with energies six, eight, and four as the trifix model, sexual dominant, social middle, self-preservation blind, and her Myers-Briggs cognitive preferences are ENFP. So without further ado, Annie, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thanks, Kara. It's really wonderful to be here. Thanks so much. So this magazine that you started a while ago on on Living Our Truth, you said that that was a really fun part of your journey. Tell us a little bit about that and what you learned and discovered through that chapter of your life. 
Um, I had just left a marriage and I met a pretty wild man who had left Wall Street and started this magazine himself, a nonprofit called Heron Dance, the bird Heron Dance. And he wanted to do something good in the world. And he wanted to interview people who were living their truth, had taken a risk to live their truth. And he also wanted to celebrate the beauty of the natural world. He was a watercolorist. So I threw my lot in with him. It was really struggling with only 1,500 subscribers. And together we grew it to 34,000 subscribers. And that's actually how I came to um, really be inspired around the growth path by meeting and interviewing a lot of very inspiring, brave people. And eventually um, that's when I started my three-day circle retreats across the country to meet these people and to gather together three days of sitting in circle and listening to stories called reconnecting with your wild souls. So I did that for seven years and it was very profound, gave me a lot of courage. Mm, Yeah. It's easy for me to believe that because this will be our 41st episode and just collecting Mm. stories from all the amazing people in this community and all the journeys that we've been on and the healing work that we've done and what we're inspired to do it really is one of the highlights of my week. And I'm so grateful Mm. for all of the deep connection that I've had with the community so far. So I do think Mm -hmm. that it's a very healing type of service to be bringing to the world. (laughs) It is. I think that's why I was so happy to join you here because listening to you and uh, Kristen, it was clear you were witnessing each other's journey as much as, you know, thinking about things, but that role of witness is really allowed me to move beyond any kind of shame um, that I have because everyone in a circle is invited to tell their truth and no one's allowed to respond actually. So you have a lot of practice speaking your truth, knowing that no one can say anything. It's very, um, it's good practice. (laughs) Yeah. You're really naming the power of witnessing and empathic Mm -hmm. presence. And what a beautiful practice to just sit and receive someone with whatever Mm -hmm. it is that's coming up for them and to just hold Mm -hmm. it with love and compassion and grace and to take whatever it is that we're carrying inside of our mind, our heart, our soul, the body, and to put it into a space and to feel like the intention Mm -hmm. here is to have everyone hold it with you and just welcome Mm -hmm. you into this shared humanity. That is beautifully said. And it brushes up against, I think, the other equally powerful truth about circles, which is as you share your stories and you think possibly, oh, I, I, you know, I missed this or I didn't say this. You realize that all of our stories are one story, It's like the Mm -hmm. story of humanity. So we have our own little little talking piece time and where all of our our pain and our 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 heartbreak and, and our dreams are expressed. And then we just realize listening like we aren't special in this really wonderful way. We aren't this outsider. We are all carrying whatever we carry. And what an important thing to to leave leave a three-day weekend with is this sense of like, there's nothing really broken about me. Kind of goes back to that first noble truth of Buddhism, you know, life is suffering. And once we can kind of really get that, then we can get over this sensation that we're special in our suffering and that we're broken because of it. And Yeah. So thanks for that beautiful reflection. Yes. Radical transparency Mm -hmm. is really what has inspired me to start this podcast and to share so much of 
my journey. And Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting space for me because living most of my life as a three with a two wing, I've been a lot more outwardly focused. And as Mm -hmm. I've been on the path, it's really shifted my attention into that point four space of going in. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it can feel a little overwhelming. There can be aspects of it that feel like I'm being self-absorbed. And yet (laughs) it's just so rich to realize that I have my own personality quirks. I have my own habits. I have my own behaviors and there are ways that I show up in the world that people enjoy, ways that they don't, and that this is just true for all of us and that we all have this edge. And when we can enter a community recognizing that we really are here to express our gifts and we can offer each other this beautiful presencing and witnessing and reflection. And I think when we're fully honest, that this is when we can really grow because there's nothing wrong with recognizing that somebody's having a pleasant or an unpleasant response to something that I'm putting out there. But if I can trust that that person really wants to give me that information in a way that is for my own growth and benefit, and I think that many of us have had the experience of getting feedback in a way that's really painful or even traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that what I'm hearing you say, and especially I'm wondering now with the work that you're doing in schools, are we trying to teach the school system as well as students how to give each other feedback in ways that's more life-serving as opposed to ways that squash our uniqueness and the way that we're life is moving through us. You know, it's, it's for some of us, it's intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of truths in there. And to answer the the last question around schools, it is our goal um, at the nonprofit that I started last year to create the conditions for people to be uncomfortable to tell you the truth, that there is such a thing, according to um, Sylvan Tompkins, I don't know if you know affect theory, but that we have in us a, the shame affect that arises. um, It's seen in babies. It's a, it's a, a, as a biological survival mechanism to alert us to the idea, to the fact that our place in our community is at risk. We've done something. We've been pointed out for something. So what we try to do in the, in that work and in the circles is to create what I call enough ballast in our boats. So if you have if you have no ballast in your boat, you're gonna a little bit of wind of shame coming your way. You're gonna flip, you're gonna flip over, um, and you're not gonna be able to even hear that feedback. But if you have a lot of ballast, and that is safety, respect, belonging, voice, then you can receive difficult feedback, like Annie. You know, you dominated the entire meeting. We love to hear what you have to say, but you talked a lot and we missed other people's voices. If I have safety, respect, belonging and voice in that group who just told me that, I'm good. And I can learn from that and I won't flip. I'll tip. It'll feel like crap, but I can can hang in there. Um, And so it's all about in each classroom, in each school, how do you build enough of that capacity enough of that ballast so that we can actually call each other out in in and in um, it's without it we can't do equity work and this is one of my pet peeves is that white i'm sorry i'll be a little bit <laughs> on my soapbox here but we can't even call each other in in a meeting when someone talks a lot 
that happened to me once in my life. So how are we going to name a race, a racist comment if we can't even call, call each other out in the simple things? So um, it's a definitely a life, a life goal of mine to help empower people to sit in the discomfort of hearing hard feedback because I was terrified of conflict. So like one of those one of those life paths that you you get because you want I wanted to be comfortable in conflict so I've tried to learn how to do that yeah yeah so how do you do that you said safety belonging and was there a third factor that you're trying to increase in schools respect belonging and voice respect um, belonging and voice yeah and and that recreates safety mm-hmm. but okay. one caveat respect um, as as defined etymologically and through a lot of us in this field is respect means to look again. So it to respect someone means you're going to, you're going to look at, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to make my assumptions about you as an MD, about you as a white woman. I'm going to make all these assumptions. And if I respect you, I'm going to look again. Mm. I'm going to listen. I'm going to see my assumptions and biases and I'm going to show you respect by saying, tell me about yourself, you know, and that's how we the restorative work doesn't work unless we show that kind of respect. You look like a bully. You look like a blank. You look like a, a thief. But we want to hear your story. We want to know more about you. And so and people will not like authentically want to repair harm until they feel seen as a human being. Yeah, not like a thief or a bully, because these are labels, right? Exactly. And I think that does connect to the Enneagram. Mm, for sure. Say more. How does it connect to the Enneagram? Well, there's some spaces where typology is used kind of is kind of weaponized and um and people's tender journeys towards uh naming and claiming their blind spots. I don't even know what to call it. Hijacked, maybe? Inappropriately called out. Mm. So there's no you know beyond a Outside of a trusting relationship, there's exchanges I see in different spaces that that are um, people have no right to name someone's six qualities or one quality or three qualities without without relationship. If if especially if they're naming a blind spot, I think that's very inappropriate. Unhelpful. Well, it's sort of the highlight of how can you have safety if you have no actual live connection. Like I'm making a bunch of judgments potentially off of something you've written or mm-hmm. a piece of something I've heard you say, or maybe a way that you showed up in one particular context. And so that comes back to what you're saying about respect, which is to relook and mm-hmm. to get curious about, hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder what's mm-hmm. going on here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just realized that that's, we have to, sh- the journey is all about showing that to ourselves. Yeah. You know, to look, keep looking again. And when Mm -hmm. I hear you say that we want to create these safe containers, if I have the thought that you're a thief or a bully, my habitual reaction might be sort of a rejection structure. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you, or I want to punish you, or I want to um, express my displeasure sort of with a shame-based way in some regard. And so this respect is actually to say, I'm not going to use whatever power I have to punish or harm you or reject you. And if there's something that you're doing or saying that I'm not enjoying, can you help me to understand why this is the strategy that you chose? 
because I really want to believe that you're starting from this place of shared humanity where you have the same hopes, dreams, longings that I do. And this mm-hmm. is simply the way that you're going about meeting those needs. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's shared. The most of the restorative work begins with shared values. It begins with tell us a tell us a value you're able to uphold when you're at your best, mm. and and tell us a value that you struggle with. And then then we'll talk about the conflict. And then we'll we'll ask what were you thinking at the time, and what were you hoping for? And that's usually hopefully when those needs those unmet needs arise, we can hear them. I was hoping to get a laugh. I was hoping to get some feel some sense of power, you know, and then you're like, oh, oh, yeah. So that particular way of getting power um, caused some impact. Would you, we're going to share that impact with you right now, (laughs) you know, and we kind of, but we start with that. Yeah, everyone has a desire for power and control. And so, yeah, you're right on. And I love that you have the nonviolent communication background to understand this concept of unmet needs. Yeah. I'm even thinking about like a boy in our community who just got in trouble for street racing and going 125 miles per hour down one of the Mm -hmm. roads. And that's Mm -hmm. a perfect example of, you know, I know this boy. He's wonderful in a million ways. And what is it about his nervous system? What need might he have been trying to meet? I'm imagining Mm -hmm. that it was for play. It was probably for pleasure. There's probably sensations that are created in his body by that level of speed and competition or challenge. As we know, teenage males are not always weighing the risks and the cons of certain (laughs) behaviors as well, or any human. But I think that demographic specifically, that trauma before the age of 25 in young men is something that is a very common cause of death because they lack that cognitive capacity to say, this is what I'm doing usually to seek sensory stimulation. And on the other hand, these are the impact, the potential impact of this behavior. And Mm -hmm. do I even have any felt sense of that? Like, is my brain mature enough (laughs) to really take that in? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, we could talk about that for a long time. So, you know, the Executive functioning in males doesn't finish till like 27 or something. And that's what's creating priorities and sorting out risks. And then I have always been attracted to working with young men in terms of, you know, kids who are challenged. And for me, it always comes down to lack of rite of passage. The boys I know who are doing the best are the ones here in rural Vermont who have to learn how to chop wood, have to learn how to milk cows at 3 a.m., have to, you know, go hunting. I know that sounds very sexist, and I know there's lots of women who also crave that rite of passage, but 800,000 years of development of the male process, they're out of the house at 14, testing themselves in the world for 800,000 years of our time together. I mean, it's just literally unfair to kind of contain our youth in classrooms and um, cubicles when they haven't yet tested themselves in the world. So I wish every every young person, both, because my daughter's done this, gone on a wilderness, you know, wilderness experience to see what they're made of and to, and to experience real esteem. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm so fascinated by that rites of passage work. 
there's a lot of it going on in Vermont, actually helping youth feel that sense of self. Talk about agency, as we were talking about before, and in Kristen's that sense that I have impact, like chopping two cords of wood. There's a felt sense that I did that. You know, yeah, it's not on really your cool. it's not on your your uh, phone. It's mm-hmm. it's there. So. I love that you're bringing that up. I have three boys right now that are 15, 17, and almost 19. So I'm like oh right in that <laughs> zone. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because I've never actually thought about this directly the way that we're talking about right now. And mm-hmm. yet I'm so grateful that this seems to be something they're choosing and that has evolved in their experience. My 15-year-old specifically has decided now that football and wrestling are over that now he wants to do jujitsu and Muay Thai, which is some form Mm. of kickboxing. And he's going to the gym and really very engaged in his 15 year old body and watching it become strong. And it is so Mm. much about testing limits. And when I watch these three boys, you know, measuring their bodies and testing (laughs) their strength and who's jumping higher And it Mm. seems kind of silly. And in some ways, I worry about it. But when I'm listening to you talk, it sounds like they're taking each other through their own rite of passage by engaging in this type of very physical competition in some ways. And I know there's a lot of concerns about football. I have these same concerns with traumatic brain injury. And I know we have this in a lot of different sports. But there's also something about football that I think young men gravitate towards as this rite of passage. There's something pretty primal about that sport, at least. And I think that you can get competition and challenge in other sports, but there's something particularly physical about that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My dad was a football coach and a wrestler and uh, they both, both those sports are very intense in that way. I would add to the, the conversation about rite of passage that sadly, just in our culture, there is, I think there's, there are a good number of opportunities for young people to test themselves. What doesn't happen and what, what is truly rite of passage is when that sense of accomplishment is then by the elders in the community is then focused on the community. So in a, in a rites of passage program, you do build this, you do do a solo for four days, you do, you know, what you need to do to feel that sense of, I'm, I'm strong. I'm an adult. Like I'm, I'm moving into adulthood here. And then the program and the elders focus that on what can we do in the, in the community? Who can we give to? So now that you're strong, how do you use that strength to be of service to the world? And that's what we're missing, you know? Yeah. I think, and then that's the really, really key pieces as you move into adulthood, what is your responsibility to use this strength you've discovered um, to help others? So, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting for me. My son, who'll be 19 in July, I'm pretty sure he's a nine and he has pretty Mm -hmm. balanced Mm -hmm. wings. But as a nine, you know, he's kind of low key and he Mm -hmm. sort of doesn't speak up or make a big deal out of things unless he he feels like there's an imminent threat happening. Mm -hmm. And there was a wonderful example in their school where he felt like a woman who was leading a certain activity got co-opted by a group of boys that he was kind of disgusted by their behavior and how they kind of 
ousted her and took over control of this activity. And it really launched us into a discussion of, you know, you really have a lot of power. And as you move Mm. through the world as a six foot four white male with all the privilege that you've had, one of the things, even though from your point nine structure, it's not going to be intuitive to move into the spaces where conflict is happening and actually exert that strength. I find that when a nine becomes healthy and really can go in and engage in the discussion, there's such beautiful energy there. Mm. And it was like my wish that he goes Mm. ahead and practices being brave and speaking up when something inside of him is really vibrating around. Mm -hmm. This isn't right, especially when it's being done by other white men to a class Mm -hmm. like women or somebody of color or whoever that may not be as empowered. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that it is really important that we look at where do we have our power and we're sort of giving each other feedback so that Mm -hmm. we can show up in a way that is going to be more life-serving. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful example of what we hope for for young men, you know, to have that awareness and then to feel empowered to to take right action. And yeah. I, I think I have two kids, 28 and 30, and two stepkids, 27 and 29, and I find millennials to be oriented in that direction, wanting to, wanting to do good, <laughs> at least these, these kids. It's wonderful to see. Yeah, it's sweet. Do you know anything about generational theory? You mean how they're categorized? Characterized? Well, what I heard was, and I learned this from uh, Christian Rivera. He has a interview that he did on Personality Hacker and that there's every 20 years, there's generational theory is that each generation is sort of serving a role in the greater context. And I can't remember mm. all of them, but I know that as Gen Xers, we're somewhat the nomads, like we're sort of mm-hmm. wandering through and making our way. And I can't remember what the millennials were called, but it's there's this like expectation mm. that they're going to come offer some salvation and sort of mm. they're pooling together in a little bit more of a we meme where I had the impression that Gen Xers have been a little bit more of an I meme because we've Often we were like latchkey kids, you know, sort of left to like go figure things out. The next generation, I guess Gen Z, they are really like a do-it-yourself generation. They're the first generation mm. that has had YouTube there to like show mm. them how to do everything. And oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some like self-starting and a lot of creativity coming out of the Gen Z generation. And so I just found that interesting. And when you were talking about millennials, uh, that was just resonating with what I had been hearing recently about generational theory. So people can check out Personality Hacker and listen to that episode if it's striking a chord. Oh, cool. Thank you. That's yeah. interesting. So tell us a little bit about your journey. I know that you have a history of trauma. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what your upbringing was like and what was hard for you and what you've had to work with here that has led you to wanting to help others? I grew really young. Grew up as the youngest of seven kids. Um, and my mom had seven kids in 10 years. I um, grew up at an all boys boarding school in Pennsylvania. So 400, 450 men. Um, it's a very conservative boarding school. My, my father 
and my mother were not of that world. My dad was an um, incredible athlete from University of Michigan, grew up on Long Island, and was just kind of invited there because he had done a PG there, a postgraduate there. So we have this ca- Irish Catholic family in this um, very wealthy, conservative boarding school. It's where Donald Trump sent his sons. And it wasn't until I was 34 that I learned that the reason that the headmaster's son punched me and yelled, you Catholic, <laughs> he was another kid on the campus, was due to prejudice against Catholics. Mm. Um, so I grew up cash poor because you didn't make any money there. You got a nice house and you got food, but shoes, not so much, you know, um, inside this this very wildly wealthy place. And then I got a, a scholarship to go to a boarding school. And again, I was, my mom made my clothes. You know, I'm, I'm in this incredible wealth. So I, I grew up a kind of an outsider, but also watching my father connect with the grounds crew more than any of the staff, even though he was the dean. So I saw in him this uh, egalitarian and a restorative kind of approach that he had in the world. I was a very um, sweet kid, apparently, um, but I was quite feral. My mom, you know, as every mom does, is mother's the best they know how. And she did a she did a lot, and but, but I did raise myself. She's quite proud of that. <laughs> um, my nickname was Anne, a little bit stinky because I always had dirty diapers, and um, pig pen was my other one. So I basically was kind of feral. Um, no one really knew where I was at any time. And I learned a lot, do a lot on my own. I was a tomboy. And I I thought the world was pretty magical. I got a lot of attention because of all these boys and this big family. But I was, you know, I remember I remember lying on the bottom of the, the stairs pretending I was dead um, <laughs> to see if anyone would notice. I can't remember how old I was, probably 10. But it wasn't until I was um, eight or so, just recently, I discovered a repressed memory about sexual molestation I encountered at that age. And then at age nine, I was assaulted by some neighborhood kids, a very impoverished community lived right next door to this beautiful campus. And um, this young woman came up, I was only like eight, again, kicked in the stomach and my mother was too really too busy to kind of hear about that very difficult experience. And then I was assaulted again um, with my friend downtown. We went down, we were robbed and was assaulted on the way to school again by random people. And then probably the, the most difficult thing was I aligned with men. I, I came into the world, looked around and said, who would want to be a woman here? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I was like, I'm out. But when I I was 14, there was a wager on my virginity at the boarding school, and the captain of the football team won that bet. My 14 year old self didn't think it was that bad. Um, it wasn't done forcefully, but it was it was the outcome, which was I was kind of kicked out of the tomboy crowd. Like I days earlier, I'd been playing football with these guys. I was a rough and tumble tomboy wrestling but this this event really like i don't belong to women tribe i don't belong to men tribe they betrayed me and so that's why i went to boarding school 
on my own volition. And that was super fun. I thought it was a lot of fun, but uh, it was a lot. It was a lot for people. Um, I didn't know the, the rules. Um, I didn't know how to, I didn't know the girl rules. I didn't know any rules and uh, just really hung out with boys mostly and was great at sports. And I think it wasn't until college that um, I did again suffer um, some trauma with at a fraternity where again, I was just like hanging out with the guys. Yay. I finally got some, I'm in with a tribe again, excuse my use of the word tribe. It's in quotation marks, but that sensation that I belong, but I was attacked at a fraternity as so many women have been, unfortunately, but all along, not really thinking I've ever suffered any trauma. (laughs) Mm. So that's really kind of the blind talk about the blind spot is I had a great childhood, an amazing childhood, amazing parents. Then what, what happened? So that I became um, an ice climbing instructor, the first ever. Can I just reflect a little bit of what I've heard you say, Annie? Yeah, Yeah. I could go on. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm just going to pause you just because (laughs) I want to reflect back sort of some of the things that I've heard. So you were the youngest of seven and... Yeah. Were you a little bit stinky and a little bit dirty because mom didn't have time to get to caring for you after taking care of the other six kids? So this was why you had Mm -hmm. to raise yourself and were a bit feral and that you just Mm -hmm. have these memories of people attacking you. And there was definitely physical abuse in your past, but you also were pretty tough and you hung with the boys. And it was when you came into your sexuality that you really lost that sense of connection or the the tribe as you referenced, because now you were viewed as a sexual object. So that made you different than the rest of the boys. And yet you were really looking for this deep sense of belonging and connection. So you didn't really see that as a problem when at 14, they took your virginity. Was that your experience of it? Yeah, I think a, a real body type because I did not ever experience shame around my body as a young person. I being feral has its gifts. Mm-hmm. It really does. There is no super ego, like no parental voice is telling me anything. Right. So yeah. I'm just following my instincts and following my body's pleasures and very sensual kid. And so this idea that skin, touching skin is the most amazing feeling ever. And why isn't everyone just naked all the time? It's kind of a thought that I had at 14. Like, that's incredible. What, why are we all working? <laughs> like, yeah. Versus, and so there was this really non-shamed concept that I had about physical interaction. And I have actually had boys from high school during, during reunions tell me like, thank you for not shaming me for my desire. You made it all so fun. You know, and I wasn't having sex in high school, but we were exploring and doing all the things that I think high school kids, you know, in, in a healthy way probably do. But um, it wasn't until like the cultural construct about it all and what men brought that that tainted it and made it that I was somehow dirty or broken. What happened that made you because it sounds like in the beginning it was fun. And like you said, men you were with have even said like, thank you for not creating shame over the fact that I so enjoyed my skin with your skin. And, and it was (laughs) a fun experience. At what Mm -hmm. moment did it 
that cultural overlay impact you and you suddenly did experience shame for the first time about that? Well, the the response to me, I remember questions in high school, like um, in the dorm, has anyone done this? And I'm like, yeah, it was amazing. And everyone just like, that's horrifying, you know? Ah, Um, got it. So being shamed for the fact that you were enjoying your own emerging sexuality. Yes. Yeah. That would be number one. Mm -hmm. And then in college, it would be um, a, a, a sense, a growing sense that the trauma and the trauma not being really held. So feeling unsafe started the, the, the gears of my ego structure in really in tight, tight, strong ways, which said, I am going to um, take charge of the situation. So I'm going to have, I'm going to initiate sex as a way to protect myself in a way. Um, How did it protect you? Just to, I think to be in charge. Um, but to have belonging. Like, was it about belonging? What do you mean by in charge? In charge of what? It's a really good question. I think, I think the six has answered a lot of questions around this particular mystery. Why in college did I give myself away to some men that I shouldn't have? You know, and I think a lot of women ask that question too. Um, And the answers are different. But for me, I think aligning myself, connecting with a strong man, I consider strong was the goal. Connecting with someone you shouldn't have, like what was wrong with them? Like what was your mind judging as like, oh, I shouldn't have been with that person sexually? What was it that made you evaluate it that way? But it was a no game for me. There was Mm -hmm. no, I was at that point shut off from my body. It Mm -hmm. was not pleasurable. Um, Yeah. Was it a habit at that point? Like, is it like when somebody's eating food that they don't even really like, but they've gotten so used to eating that they mindlessly eat? Were you having mindless sexual connections, did it feel like? I would say that um, when I went from the boarding school and this big, huge family, and even though I was no one was attuning to me in particular, I was still in this big group where everyone knew me and picking me up, right? And then I went to a boarding school where everyone is taking care of you in certain ways. No one's really attuning to you, but you're in a community, right? Mm-hmm. I went to college, 13,000 people didn't know a single soul. And in high school, even if I wasn't like, I didn't have a boyfriend, I was, we were wrestling with each other. There was all this always physical contact and hugging and laying in bed together at college. Zero. No one, no one to even say hello to. I think that I used sex to just have human contact. That's what it felt like. So yeah, what I was hearing, Annie, is that your introduction to sexuality had a lot of innocence with it. As a child that was raised, as you said, quote unquote, feral, I would just imagine that at sexual maturity, that it's perfectly normal for boys and girls to start discovering these zones of pleasure and engaging with each other in sexual ways. And it feels like you were really connected to the purity of that. And you came from these environments where even though they were violent at times, there was also like a lot of a need for connection that was met. You had your large family, you had the boarding school, you then went off to the other boarding school. So there was this element of protection. And then when you got to the university, it sounds like there was this moment of 
I use the term alarmed aloneness, where it's suddenly like, mm. oh, like, where are my people? And mm. that sex seemed like a way that you could get skin to skin contact and get a level of intimacy that really wasn't available to you any other way. And as I'm mm-hmm. sitting here and thinking about this, I'm just not sure that that changes. I'm wondering, I'm just feeling really curious because I know that I've gone through phases. I've had three long-term committed relationships. And in between those times, there are absolutely times that I just want a naked male body to have (laughs) that kind of physical connection with. And since dating apps have come online, I know that there are men that are just looking for that same type of connection. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm a little radical in that I've been pretty open that that sometimes that's exactly the need that I'm trying to meet. And I think we Mm -hmm. develop screening criteria around who's the type of person that feels safe, that I'm going to enjoy conversation or a meal with, or like on some level, and then sexuality may be a part of it, which as two consenting adults that are looking to meet needs for physical touch and pleasure I think it's a bit of a radical thing to say that I don't really think there's a problem with that. And yet, absolutely from society, there's a lot of messages that there's some shame associated with it. So I'm just so curious, if we lived in a world where this need for physical touch, this need for sexual connection was considered as normal as eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, sleeping, it was just something that we all did every week and with whoever had this willingness to engage in that. And it, we didn't have these layers of social shame or the importance of monogamy. I think that when you enter into a sacred pair bond or like a sacred romantic connection, that now you may choose to have your sexual expression be very, be sacred. You know, it's now not something that I'm going to connect with other people in other ways, but on some level, if you're in a healthy pair bond, you're now meeting that need for each other. And I think we're in a new era in time where we don't get married at 13 like they did in you know, the royal times when little girls were married off to older men. And you know, mm-hmm. we have choice about our sexuality and we don't necessarily get married just because we've graduated from college and it's like the next right. thing to do. And some of us are even choosing to be single and to be autonomous. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious to hear how it is for you to hear me say that. And are we traumatizing people by all the stigmas that we're putting around sexual behavior? Or which part of this should we be concerned about? And how have you sort of worked that out in your own experience? Well, it's a lot. Um, I would say that the difference... So I agree that with everything you said about healthy exchange of expression of needs, sexual needs, consensual, mutually consensual um, experiences of all kinds, I'm I'm in favor, you know, of boundaried people are safe, open marriages, whatever. I think monogamy as the as the default is has really kind of hurt us as uh, people trying to get what they need that standard, but. I would say that when there are t- attachment and there's attachment trauma, lack of attunement, I think, but in your holding environment and like there was in mine, because my mother wasn't just busy, 
she wasn't attuned. She wasn't just as I wasn't as a mother when I'm working with that. There's somewhere where the, the, the desire to feel skin was secondary to the, the compulsion to be coupled at any cost, you know, and so not so much discernment. Um, I, I remember several occasions where I kind of, stalking's not the right word, but just got really, really focused on like, I have to, I have to have this, I have to have this connection, I cannot be alone. And then a total lack of expressing my needs in the situation. So like, it's only been since my last relationship that I've, I've actually been able to express all my needs, and to actually accept pleasure towards mm-hmm. me. Like, I've, I see that even when it was health, kind of healthy exploration, I was always the one doing the exploring. Mm, and okay. receiving exploration wasn't wasn't something I was comfortable with. Um, so there's something there about, and you know, I'm bringing this all the way back to agency. It's like, where was mine <laughs> sexually? It looked like I had a lot, but there was a blind spot that was driving me towards sexual connection that did not have integrity to my best self and was a facsimile for intimacy. And I was. I was fine with that, you know, like I was fine, <laughs> yeah, yeah, quote unquote fine. So I, I have to say that I think a lot of what happens today is that kind of facsimile and that, that yes, there are healthy bondings and pairings of all types, but I think, I think there's a lot of that, a lot of pretending that it's what you want when really what you want is something more. You want actual yeah. intimacy. You know, and we just make do. And for me, it was, I I know that it wasn't a lot of what I was doing wasn't healthy because I was watching it. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but kind of like an outer outer body. I'm watching myself do the sexual act as if I'm not really there. The first time I ever actually, again, felt like I was really there was my latest uh, relationship. I've had three as well. And like, oh, my God, I'm in my body. So it's mm-hmm. all been kind of like you learn, you live your life forward. And, and as I was living my life forward, I thought, this is great. I'm having a lot of fun living it backwards. I wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really have agency. I was being thrust towards men and towards situations by something that I did not have. I wasn't in charge of. It was self-protective something. Well, it sounds yeah. like the neuroticism of the sexual instinct. It sounds like a sexual dominant instinct that just like a self-pres instinct that's neurotic can lead us to overeat or can lead us to over like hoard money or resources and a neurotic social instinct can lead us to mm-hmm. a neurotic pursuit of promotion or a neurotic something whereas I'm wondering if a neurotic sexual instinct I think it can show up one of two ways I'm seeing the one way is this neurotic seeking for some kind of a bond, a sexual bond that is not actually giving me the intimacy. Like it's not what I need, but I'm going to do that because there's, it's better than not having that. And Mm -hmm. then I've also seen sexual dominant individuals who almost put like a purity on the sexual Mm one-to-one connection. It's like, they won't be with anybody unless Mm -hmm. this person can be like of this idealized Mm -hmm. form And then when that person 
shows themselves to be human in some way, there's like a heartbreak because mm. it's almost like the sacredness becomes neurotic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hearing you talk, yeah, I think that what I'm most curious about though, as I've just been exploring sexuality in general, is I do think it's so important what level of consciousness we're bringing to it. And I just interviewed um, Frederick Cunha, I think is how you say his last mm -hmm. name. So there were two episodes on sex and the Enneagram. And he was talking about how he studied these different Enneagram types and that one of the big problems is that we're using sex to meet needs for which sex is not designed for. That's right. Yeah. 100%. So I think that yeah. if we could teach humans to actually connect with what is it I'm wanting here, is this mm -hmm. strategy going to get that for me? Yeah, I think it's hard. And I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. There are definitely times when, you know, you make decisions where you're like, yeah. And I think that more it's that whenever you're going to be with somebody sexually, you know, they say in the Bible, like they knew each other, like there's a way of <laughs> yeah. knowing each other that you can't really discover until you are sexually intimate. And maybe there can be a fit across self-present social domains but like that sexual connection doesn't work and that happens. And then you're like, yeah, no, not that. Mm -hmm. I think that some people have more of a felt sense of like, yes, this is this or no, it's not before you get into that space. But I actually think that that's a little bit of being a sexual blind individual is that you mm -hmm. kind of have to experience it and collect some data until you actually know what is a true sexual instinctual connection that is meeting what the needs of what the sexual instinct is trying to give, which is that deep intimacy, which is that mm. growth and that exploration and that connection to a higher union and a higher merging. And I think that many people who are sexual blind choose partners off of self-pres or social needs because mm. there is this certain blindness to what does that really feel like? And as we know, the mm. sexual instinct doesn't have to be about sex. We can express our sexual instinct through our creativity and our passions and whatever we're creating in realms that are not sexuality between two individuals. But I think that there's just that part of it. And for those of us that are sexual blind, I think sometimes we have to work our way there, especially as attachment types, because mm. if you are identifying as a six and I identify as a three and we know there's lots of nines out there. We have this longing for attachment that can also supersede. Is this actually a healthy attachment? And like you named, if we have some wounds, I don't know a lot of people that actually feel like their parents attuned to them effectively. <laughs> I mean, I know mm -hmm. a lot of people that feel like they had good parents and the parents were doing the best that they could. But we have to remember that most of our parents weren't on a consciousness journey. Most of our parents, uh, you know, were not self-observing. And I just think that we're entering a different generation because my daughter, who's 23 right now, sends me all of these memes off of TikTok <laughs> about, you know, what she's doing with her attachment wounds. And like she and I talk about like where this all came <laughs> from. I can't have these conversations with my mom. And I know she wasn't having them with hers. So <laughs> I actually have some encouragement that I think we're born to the parents we have. We have mm -hmm. the nervous system that we have. And now we just have this expression 
of that recipe of ingredients. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. keep circling around this whole concept of agency. And this episode has once again turned out to be something about sexual agency, I would say. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you work with in the schools and, you know, I have all these teenagers and all of us, many of us engage with young people. And how do we help them to really develop this healthy sense of their sexuality where we aren't creating like a purity cult where we're like, don't explore. Or if you have a sexual experience that is unsatisfactory, that that means it was wrong or bad, or you shouldn't have done that. But also remembering that our body is a temple and that this is something very special and that the vehicle of our sexuality in the reason that we're pursuing it is that a fulfilling pair bond where there's mutuality and both sides feel seen and heard and understood. I think that that's the beauty of what the instinct is longing for. What do you think? <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Maybe repeat the question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the way that, was, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the way that I'm thinking of it is I think of myself as a certain chemical element. And mm-hmm. I think of somebody that I'm choosing to be intimate with as their own unique chemical element. And mm-hmm. when we combine our two energies, there is something new that's created. Now, anybody mm-hmm. who's been in a chemistry lab, sometimes you combine two things and there's like, you create like a noxious substance and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. don't mix those two things again. Sometimes you mix two things and you end up with something really amazing and beautiful. So on the one hand, I'm just naming that the closer that we can become connected to all of our instinctual drives, where we can really presence, like, what is this drive encouraging me to pursue? Like, what is it wanting for me? And am I looking at the behavior or this other person? And what is the likelihood I'm going to get that in this context with this person? Or am I just simply reacting, leaking energy, looking for brief Mm -hmm. relief? all of which we mm-hmm. know is ultimately not satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that if I were to support youth and had that freedom to do so, um, because public schools, there's there's only so much you can talk about. I would talk about the centers mm-hmm. because I would say that I went against my kind of my sexual instinct. So that's the instincts and centers because I went against my sexual instinct with my current husband because I didn't find him sexy when I met him at all. There was no chemistry. He's a five. He wasn't give he wasn't <laughs> he was doing well, let's this not five say fives can't be sexy, but you know. <laughs> oh yeah. No, but I mean but he his cards close to his chest energetically. Yeah. Like yeah. he there he's contained, right? When you first meet him. And so the time in, where I was in my life was I was pulling on myself press. I was pulling myself present and I was pulling my social in and saying, I have got to take care of myself. I have got to be more thoughtful. I have got to hang out with really kind people. And so I was like, let's have another date. Let's, let's, you're, you're a nice guy. I, let's do this again, you know? And then um, we were together again and it was awesome. And I said, let's see, see each other again. That was fun. We saw each other again. And then all these things I checked off, like he has a retirement account because he's 40, you know, 40 something. All these things. And then we moved to the bedroom and it was absolutely amazing. The best sex of my life. But had I just gone with my sexual instinct, no way. And that's probably because you're self-pressed blind. Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Because so, so, all I want, all I want is the, you know, I respond to electricity. Yeah. But by saying, well, just because electricity isn't here right now, doesn't mean it's not going to be. And even if it's never here, he's still a good person who I could have a good friendship with and we ride bikes and do all this stuff together. So doesn't mean we have to be together sexually, like all this thoughtful stuff about how we might fit into my life and how it might go and who he was and, oh, he, he has daughters and he, you know, all that evaluation stuff had never happened before. <laughs> so and my story is the flip. So I was yeah. always picking partners because they fit self-pres or social boxes. And, uh-huh. you know, because I'm self-pres dominant and I have a healthy connection to my body, I mean, sex is good. You know, I mean, I just am grateful that that's not a problem for me. But as I've been doing sexual blind spot work and as I have recognized, oh, no, I've got to, like, notice that charge. I've got to, like, take mm-hmm. all those self-present social things that have kept me from having the richness and the depth and the intensity of a relationship that I can now find. And what's mm-hmm. interesting And this also has to do with life stage is that, you know, when you're 49 years old and meeting people, people have jobs that sometimes aren't in the same state or they have families and they have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you end up vibing in a sexual instinctual zone, knowing that self-present social are probably not going to work. Now, if you take that string out far enough, of course, we can all make choices where if it's a match that both sides are really feeling in that sexual instinctual zone, we're going to sacrifice something that self-pres or social to have that union. But I think that this is where this whole concept of love comes on board, where what does it mean to love another human? Maybe Mm -hmm. the best way to love somebody is to say, you know what, you have to be there and take care of your family and do your things. And I have to be here and take care of mine. And so it's almost like we're constantly balancing these needs. And all three of these drives are important. And I do believe that many of us will hit the jackpot at one point Mm -hmm. in time where all three of those line up and like, now you have a pair bond. But I also (laughs) think that not everybody finds that pair bond that's going to work forever and ever and always. And so I think with all of these conversations, I'm just opening up the dialogue around how can we explore connection in ways that honor ourselves, that honor others, and can we just look at all of the intensity that we have over judging what is the right or wrong way that we're engaging with our sexuality? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. And the more that we you know, respect ourselves to look again at what we, the story we tell ourselves about what we're doing or who we're seeing or how it looks or what the rules are. It's like the more chance there is for that, is that positive bonding with somebody yeah. else is, um, oh, I'm, you know, monogamy, maybe it doesn't work or, oh, maybe I, I can do a long distance relationship. Like you got to question everything. Everything's mm-hmm. up in the air right now. I, I just think it's so, so important to, it's the power, everything, the power uh, dynamic between as men start to connect with their femininity. How do we as women welcome that? We want that. We want them to be connected to their heart, to their softness. And yet often women respond poorly to that. They're like, 
man up, <laughs> you know? And so I think both sides, men and women, really need to just shake up what they think it's all supposed to look like. And I love that. feel into their own rightness and, and to examine it together. I just, yeah, it's possible. I'm definitely in that relationship right now. It's been 15 years. It's absolutely amazing. Mm, yeah. I love hearing mm -hmm. that. And I think I want to yeah. end this episode by coming back to shame. Because mm -hmm. I think that we all have experiences with our sexuality that have evoked shame in one way, shape, or form at some time in our lives. I think that it's a zone where it's sort of a shame hotspot. And so mm -hmm. as we become better at working with shame, I think that we can hold those times that I know I've betrayed myself and what is best for me at times. And I know that I've betrayed others and have not given or communicated or shown up in a way that I wished that I had. And I think that when we're really connected to our heart, that our heart leads the way because there's kind of that yuck feeling when something happened that is not aligned with what I want for myself. And mm -hmm. there's this joy and this expansion. And I love hearing about you and your husband for the last 15 years. And there's just this real beauty that emerges when you start to embark on relationship as a spiritual practice and recognize mm -hmm. that it's still two humans figuring it out, but there's this deep commitment and connection and pleasure and joy and probably all of the many flavors of life that it sounds like you're really able to tap into together. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amen. Amen to all of that. Well, thank it's you so much, Annie. Thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is a beautiful thing. Thank you. And I really appreciate your authenticity and vulnerability in exploring this topic with me. I think mm -hmm. that having these kinds of open conversations is really important for people to just listen and turn inward and say, oh, and how is it for me? And mm -hmm. what am I hearing? What's that activating inside of me? What am I liking? What am I not liking? What's underneath that? This mm -hmm. whole way of respecting each of our own unique journeys is what mm -hmm. I think I'm going to take away from this interview and that you really connected me to today. Well, thank you. I, I will maybe get to edit back in, but you asked me about the shame as a final question. Yeah, please. <laughs> I, do I that. totally lost it because I really love that you came back to, to that concept of shame. And this conversation has really helped me feel into what is it? Because I didn't have that early shaming about body or, mm -hmm. you know, some people carry, like, I feel shamed about the body or sexuality in general. It's the betrayal of self, you yeah. know, that is what, which then causes pain to others. So my unconsciousness pushed me towards situations that put men in front of my children or choices about men not in dangerous ways, but just like choosing to put attention someplace towards bonding rather than through nurturing or whatever, whatever you value in life, there's unconscious drives that push you, can push you towards the sexual interactions that are not, that aren't, that aren't who you want to be. And so it's an unconsciousness that causes me shame. Like I should have known better. Yeah. I should have had agency. I should have, I should have seen and, and discerned somehow. Um, but I, I couldn't because I, I didn't see my blind spots. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't, you can't see what you can't see. 
Um, and that's been my prayer my entire life. Please help me see what I cannot see. Um, yeah. And this is where we get to practice forgiveness. And I love this yeah. definition of forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is giving up all hope of having had a better past. <laughs> love it. That's a great one to end with. <laughs> so thank you, Annie. May we all practice forgiveness wherever it is needed towards ourselves, mm-hmm. towards others. And until next week, thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much, Kara. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at social at karenansmd.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenansmd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes.